you'll turn with me to Psalm 52. Psalm 52, we're picking up right where we left off last week. As we went through Psalm 51, and today is Psalm 52. Hear God's word for you this morning. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, help us to see, unite our hearts to fear your name. Lord, we long to know more and more what it is to be resting in the truth of the theme of the book of Psalms, that blessed are all who take refuge in the King who reigns. Help us to see that more and more this morning. Fill me with your Spirit to proclaim your truth clearly and do work in each of our hearts. Lord, we pray this for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. Afghanistan. When I say that word, most of us might think of maybe 20 years of war. Or if you're a history buff, you think about the fact that no massive nation has ever conquered from Britain to Russia to the U.S. And then kind of immediate history, we think of the withdrawal of the U.S. that just recently happened and the thousands of allies and even many Americans left behind. And that makes me think about what's going on now in that country, which we don't know very clearly what it is because we don't have the eyes and ears that we used to, but we can make some reasonable deductions that vulnerable people, that women, Christians, other minority groups, are not only rapidly losing rights, but also living in fear for their lives and many losing their very lives. The wicked are devouring those around them. They plot destruction. We heard and saw uh, instances of hit lists, uh, listing Christians and people going door to door through apartment buildings, hunting for those who believed in Christ. Those now in power appear to love evil more than good. And as we think about it, it's disheartening. It's, it's a bit disorienting, and it's actually maddening in some ways as well. And there's a longing when we hear that for right to be done, for things to be set back in the right way, but yet that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be going the opposite direction. 
You know what? I think David wrestled with much the same idea. Psalm 52, the inscription, I I didn't read it earlier, states this, to the choir master, a, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, if you're not familiar with that story, that inscription means virtually nothing. Like, okay, great. Some dude named Doeg, what a great name, said something to Saul about David meeting a dude named Ahimelech. But there's a lot more to it. In 1 Samuel, Saul was king at the time, but David, or, but David had been anointed king. Saul was rejected, but David had not yet taken office. Saul was pursuing David, attempting to take his life on multiple occasions. And then we come to chapter 21. David is fleeing from Saul, and he ended up in Nob. And he came to Ahimelech, the priest. And there, David was able to secure some bread for his men and for himself, and he had no... Um, other provisions, he was also able to to secure Goliath's sword as he fled from Saul. But as he was there, there was another man. There's this dude with a cool name, Doeg, the Edomite. And he was one of Saul's servants. And in the next chapter in 1 Samuel 22, Doeg informed Saul that he saw David in Nob. And so Saul sent for Ahimelech, and all of Ahimelech's father's house, and all the priests of Nob. And with jealousy and anger, he questioned Ahimelech. And honestly, I don't think it mattered what Ahimelech would have said at this point. And Saul ordered Ahimelech and the priests to be killed, but actually none of Saul's men, none of the servants of the king would carry out that order. And so he turned to Doeg, the Edomite. And at that point, we come to 1 Samuel twenty-two eighteen. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Hemlech, the son of Ahatub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. You can imagine that that whole episode troubled David massively. He was broken over this, and it stirred him to meditate upon what happened, to consider the reality of evil and to consider truth, because in the midst of evil all around us and the weight of life's experience, only truth counters what we often see. We find that as we turn to God's Word, and particularly for us, to His revealed Word in Jesus Christ, whose life, death, and resurrection answer the pain and the heartache of this world, a world filled with evil men and women who have power and who love destruction. That is where we are to turn, to the Word of truth. So this morning, we're going to look at David's meditation, not only because it offers comfort, but because it offers wisdom as well. 
And I'm going to break it down into three sections. Verses 1 to 4 deal with the problem. The problem of the evil, mighty man. Then verses 5 to 7 contain the responses of both God and the righteous. And then the final two verses, we see the footing or the standing, the temper of the righteous one. So really, from the very beginning of this psalm, the the idea is set forth. It's set in motion. The, The first verse, you see this contrast. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Now, it's easy to to get and to understand that first line in the midst of, of why David wrote this, but why put these two lines together? What's the connection? You know, first you have this mighty man boasting an evil, and that description, mighty man, is actually typically reserved for a powerful warrior, someone strong and truly mighty. But I think it here, especially if David is thinking about Doeg particularly, I think there's a hint of sarcasm. Doeg was the chief of the herdsmen. He was not listed as one of the mighty men. He, he, he didn't really qualify as that. And, and his claim to fame was striking down hundreds of defenseless people. So I think that tone of some sarcasm there has some reasonableness to it. But no matter if David is referring to Doeg or some would even say he's referring to Saul, I think he's referring to this mighty man in general in many ways, reflecting off of the situation. He's putting forth truth as he meditated upon what was going on and as he went to the truth of God. And that's important to to see because let, let me ask you this. When you, and we've already talked about this, but when you consider the evil in the world, where do you go? Do you dive deeper into watching the news? Or do you dive deeper into God's Word to see how to handle it and how to deal with it? Especially, we have had a weighty, weighty 18 months. Where have you gone for comfort? David went to the steadfast love of God, to God's loving kindness, to His committed and chosen generosity towards His people. God has resolved that no matter the cost, He will do good to the recipients of His steadfast love. And so you have this contrast between this boasting of this mighty man and the steadfast, everlasting love of God. You know, the boasting may be present for the moment. It may be very, very real, but it does not last. As Charles Spurgeon wrote, he said, the tyrant's fury cannot dry up the perennial stream of divine mercy. The fury of the tyrant cannot ever dry up the stream of God's mercy. Well, then David goes on to describe really the lifestyle, the, I would say the the modus operandi of this mighty man. Look at verses 2 to 4 again. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, oh, deceitful tongue. Now, we're not going to go through every part, but you see these running ideas in it, the tongue, destruction and, and devouring, lies and deceit, and what one loves. And I think that last idea is so vitally important for us because what we love will shape us. 
plain and simple. What you love, what you set your focus and your attention upon will begin to shape you. I've quoted from this work before, but I'll quote from it again. It's a little book called The Life of God in the Soul of Man by Henry Skugel. And near the beginning of that little book, he makes this vitally important observation. He says, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He who loves mean and sordid things does thereby become base and vile. But a noble and well-placed affection does advance and improve the spirit unto a conformity with the perfections which it loves. So what he's saying is if, if you love those things that are evil, that are bad, that are base, that are vile, that are detestable, you'll start to be conformed to them. But a noble, well-placed affection, uh, an affection placed on the Lord will begin to conform you to Him. We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So what we love conforms us to look more like it. And what is it that the mighty man loves? Well, the text tells us, you love evil more than good. You love all words that devour. What he loves is deceit and destruction and lying, words that tear down and swallow up whoever's misfortunate enough to have them aimed in their direction. This mighty man's malicious. The purpose of his words is not help but harm. It's harm to others in a building up of himself. His tongue is described as razor sharp. It cuts and tears, it wounds and destroys. The only time this person would ever tell the truth rather than a lie is if the truth would do more damage to the person he's talking about. And I could almost guarantee if he did, it would be a pretty slanted telling of the truth. This is those who love evil more than good. This is those who focus on themselves, who pursue their own good above serving others, above the good of others. And you have to realize that if you dive into that pool of lies and deceit, you begin to enjoy it, it will change you. You see this at the end of verse 4, right? The mighty man is simply called by what he has become, deceitful tongue. He doesn't re-identify him as the mighty man, but he says, oh, deceitful tongue. It's a synonym in the psalm with the mighty man who loves evil. He's become what he loves. And this type of person is obviously dangerous, dangerous to God's people, to the vulnerable, to the weak. They're a threat to shalom, to the peace of God, and their presence and power can truly shake God's people. It can actually shake how we are doing we heard just a little bit ago Psalm 37, and we sang Psalm 73. But Psalm 37, those first two verses, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And then on down to verse 20, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The response, there's judgment. The wicked, they are not forever. They are not firm. David 
writes that same basic truth in verse 5 of our text. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. I've said this many times. You probably know what's coming. Some of the sweetest words in Scripture are, but God. But God. God will surely work. They tell us that that though things are going one way, there is absolute, complete, utter, firm hope that things will reverse. Here we see a progression in the action of the Lord, right? First, this man is broken down. That's one thing, to be broken down, to be taken down in that. But then this whole next idea Listen to that, that language again. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He's a homeless man now. And finally, it's taken to the point of no recourse, no return, no remedy. He is uprooted from the land of the living. Now, that final picture, and, and really throughout the Psalms, the Psalms use images a lot. Hebrew poetry is full of images that are, that are meant for us to stop and meditate and reflect upon and get that picture in our minds. It, it gets it deeper into our souls. And so here we imagine a plant, powerful, strong, maybe flourishing in many ways. We saw that in Psalm 37, that the, the wicked pretends to be a green laurel tree. They, they, they're spreading themselves out. They're, they're strong, but then they're pulled out of the ground root and all, with one fell swoop, dead, gone, never to return. And really, the the first psalm in this entire Psalter has much that same image, doesn't it? Starting in verse 3, the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. In the long run, inconsequential, they, they have no substance. And as we look down at verse 8 in Psalm 52, we see that the righteous person is like the green olive tree in the house of God, and we'll get to that more in a moment. But Matthew Henry puts this truth of, uh, of what's going to happen to the wicked very bluntly, but it's what we need to hear. He says, when the wicked, when wicked men die, they are rooted out of the land of the living to perish forever as fuel to the fire of divine wrath. This will be the portion of those that contend with God. And the certainty of knowing that and believing that and understanding that is invaluable truth to our comfort in the midst of a world where often that wicked man seems to be prospering and is causing damage to God's people and to the weak and the vulnerable. Asaph dealt with that same basic idea, wrestled with the prosperity of the wicked, wrestled with how can they be flourishing when when God's people are not. Psalm 73, verse 16, he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. They have their fill in this life, maybe, but this life is but a vapor in comparison to eternity. There will be eternal justice. What the wicked have loved 
Not only have they become, but it will also be their final destination. There will be a reckoning. We confess, the church universal confesses the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Or the Nicene Creed, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, who shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And folks, throughout Scripture, there is comfort given to the righteous that there will be judgment. There will be a reckoning. And yet, with this, there's also instruction. There's a call then, stay the course. Walk the path of the blessed man. Walk in the way that is right, the way of the righteous, much like we hear in Proverbs 2, starting in verse 20. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. So seeing the inevitable end of the wicked evokes a response, and David talks about a response. Look at verses 6 and 7. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. When the righteous see the judgment of God on the wicked, when we, when we ponder it, David writes of two reactions, fear and laughter. Now, fear. This is not the, the cowering kind of fear for us, but it's the fear of the Lord. It's reverence and awe and worship. It's fear that um, engenders trust in the Lord. Seeing the work of God, however it is manifested, is a catalyst for proper fear as we stop and we think about it. Psalm 40, verse 3, David, in that, in that psalm, he talks about being in this pit, this miry clay. And verse 3 says, he, uh, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, because he's been pulled out. And he says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. With deliverance comes praise, comes a, a greater fear and understanding. Also, the reality of judgment does the same thing. Psalm 119, 120, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. So there's fear, but then there's also laughter. Now, how is laughter at someone's demise appropriate? Like, if you see somebody walking down the street, you didn't like them, and they just fall over and skin their knee, and you laugh, you kind of are a jerk. So how is laughter like this appropriate? One commentator wrote this. He said, Such exaltation to our modern sensibility seems shocking because we can hardly conceive of it apart from the gratification of personal vindictiveness. But there is such a thing as a righteous hatred, as a righteous scorn. There is such a thing as a shout of righteous joy at the downfall of the tyrant and the oppressor at the triumph of the righteousness and truth over wrong and falsehood. And you know, that commentator who wrote that wrote it in the late 1800s. And I think the modern sensibilities are still the same. I think the reality is, is if we don't get the evilness of evil and how it is treason and rebellion against a holy God, we won't understand what it is to laugh when that evil is defeated. Actually, this idea, as I was going through this, I thought of the book of Esther and Haman, the enemy of God's people, 
He sought through deception and lies to destroy the Jews, and in particular, he hated Mordecai. And through twist of events and God's providence, Haman actually ended up hanged on the very gallows he had made for Mordecai. And then the enemies of God were defeated, and the Feast of Purim was inaugurated. It was a celebration of joy and and certainly laughter at the turn of events, at the judgment of God on the enemies of God. And this laughter mirrors the laughter of God as He considers the futility of humanity in their rebellion against Him. Look at Psalm 2-4. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The Lord laughs at them. It's futile for them to fight against Him. But this laughter of God's people is also accompanied with truth. The truth informs their laughter. They see the ludicrous nature of what they say. I mean, look at what they say. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, which will fade away. We can't take it with us. And sought refuge in his own destruction. That seems like a dumb place to seek refuge. In your own destruction. Sought refuge in, sought to be, one translation will say, strong in his evil desire, strength, finding strength in his own evil. And so there's a futility to that. The laughter is fueled by realizing the very untrustworthy nature of the mighty man's object of trust. So I do think part of this instruction of this psalm calls us to examine our own lives. What are we trusting for our refuge, for our strength? And are we looking to truth to bring us comfort in the midst of the presence of evil people? Where do we rest our hope? Last few verses of Psalm 27, particularly in the old New American Standard Version, says this, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And the only way you will believe that you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living is if you know the Lord and you've meditated upon who He is. You spend time with Him. You spend time in worship with the saints. You spend time in, in private study of God's Word and meditation and in prayer. Folks, if we don't believe the Lord and all He will do and that we will see His goodness, we will despair in the midst of this world. Well, now let's turn to the last two verses. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Now remember the contrast again here with the uprooting of the evil man. Here is the olive tree. The olive tree, one um, well known for its longevity. And here it's even pictured as green. It's in full productivity. Not only that, it grows where? In the house of God. It is planted firmly. It has its roots going deeply into the Lord, into truth. It's protected. And the implication is that tree will not be uprooted. That tree is safe. 
The trust of the righteous is in the steadfast love of God. It is in what is eternal and everlasting. You see, the evil man, they, they trust in what is tangible, what they see, what they feel all the time. But the righteous in what is eternal. That truth comes out as, as we think about our, uh, our struggling with um, difficulty and affliction in our lives. 2 Corinthians 4 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are, uh, to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So right trust will bring a strong footing it will bring flourishing. Psalm 92, verses 12 and 13. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of the Lord. We flourish as we are with the Lord. But along with this comes an attitude of gratefulness. Not only for the things that God has done, but for the things that He will do. We have to live lives of anticipatory thankfulness. Looking forward to what God will do and even thanking Him now for what we know that He will do. Because it's the character of God. The Lord has worked. He will work. Folks, He's given His Son for us. He'll take us to Himself. He's executed judgment, and He will finally and fully do so. Therefore, as the righteous, we wait with the company of the upright and the godly in fellowship together. We wait for the name of the Lord, for it is good. We wait for Him to vindicate His righteousness and His holiness and His justice and His grace, His mercy, and He will do so in the eyes of every living creature. But again, though the righteous can stand confident in waiting on the name of the Lord in the, the nitty-gritty of everyday life of the real world, the lying tongue, the one who loves destruction, that still has its effect on us. It still does. The old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is an absolute lie heard somebody talking about this. They're like, they remember, you know, playing rugby as a kid and breaking bones. They don't remember that, but they remember what somebody said to them that diminished who they were. The lying tongue can be so destructive. The, the wicked, evil man can do so much, and that's all around. And that person who's lying and wicked is actually going for our destruction. Folks, the reality is, is the underground church in Afghanistan is still in grave danger, if it still exists. And we can feel the force of those who seek our downfall, whatever realm it may be, but we have a sure grounding for hope. So let us stay in that grounding. Let us stay rooted and planted in the house of God. This is a broken and fallen world, and it can beat us down. But the object of our trust will enable us to endure and to process the incongruity of it all. So where does your trust reside? Where will it reside? Because the reality is, though, if we have the right object of trust, it will help us to endure. If we have the wrong object of trust, we will not endure. So don't build your confidence 
on the sand of riches and your own strength or your own ability. Build it on the solid rock of Christ the Lord and His steadfast love. Folks, Jesus has gone before us. He's endured the taunts, the lies, the arrogance, the evil. He's taken the worst that evil men can throw at someone, and He conquered it. He willingly submitted to it. He trusted the Father fully and completely, and He endured the cross. He suffered death, was resurrected, and now lives and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And from there, He will come with glory to judge the living and the dead. Again, the reality is there will be wearisome days. We will have those who seek our destruction, who seek our demise through words and actions, and it will be distressing and puzzling and annoying. And we could give up hope if we don't hold fast to our Lord, if we don't hear His call unto us to come unto Him. We've seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living We've seen it in Christ, and we will surely experience that goodness for all eternity. So, folks, let's be people who rest in that and who can be described as a green olive tree firmly planted in the house of God who has come unto our Lord and rested there securely and safely in the midst of whatever this world and the enemy throws at us. Let's pray. Father, We know there's much evil in this world. There are many who fight against your people. But we can rest secure in truth. We can rest secure in the solid rock that is Christ. We have a sure and steadfast hope. We can enter. We're called to enter within the veil. We, we've heard Christ say, come unto him and rest find in Him our star, our sun, and Lord, we pray that in that light of life we will walk till all our days are done. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.